Hello and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. I'm glad you could join us today as we continue our study in the book of James. Today we'll be in the second chapter of James's letter to the early church as he was pastor of the church there at Jerusalem and the church had scattered out around the Mediterranean and he was writing this letter to encourage them and to challenge them in living out their faith. So I'm glad you could join us for this study as we delve into God's Word and we seek to truly grasp hold of Scripture, what it means and how it applies to our lives. Thanks again for joining us. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer before we dig into His Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the many blessings that you have given us, for your Word that helps us to see who you are and to know who Christ is and the power he has to bring salvation and changed lives. Father, as we seek to live out our faith in Christ, help us to to look intently into your word and to be changed by it as we move forward. Lord, we thank you that you have blessed us with salvation through Jesus the Christ and that you have given us your word. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, as I said, we're in the second chapter of James, and James wrote this church, this church, wrote this letter to the early church as it was scattered around the Mediterranean world at the time, having many of them fled Jerusalem due to persecution that was going on there. And of course, the time period for the writing of this falls in about the same time period as Barnabas and Paul's first missionary journey. So it would have been around uh, 47, 48 AD, James may have written this anywhere from, say, 44, 45, all the way through 49 AD. So in that window of time um, is when this letter would have gone out. And it was very practical. Uh, many of the Christians were living as a, a sect of Judaism, Um, and worshiping together in in synagogues with the Jews. They weren't seen as something separate. They were seen as followers of the way at this point. Um, Hadn't been called Christians yet. That's a name that comes later out of Antioch. But what we encounter is some very practical issues. I mean, James is a pastor. These are his his flock that are scattered, and he's trying to stay connected to them, but also keep them connected to Christ and living that out. And we've he's already talked about the importance of the Word and being shaped by the Word and, and what it looks like to, to live out uh, the control of God in our lives instead of letting our natural inclinations run their course uh, back in chapter one. But now as we get into chapter two, it's a little different framework. He begins to address in in serious terms two big issues in the church. One being the idea of poverty and generosity, or what what is true uh, justice? What is it to truly justly live out the law of God in relation to other people? And how does wealth and poverty play out in that framework? And so he gives some profound words on it here in the first 12, 13 verses of the chapter. 
related to that topic. And then he moves on to another topic yet still related. 14 through the end of the chapter deals with the concept of faith and deeds and really challenges this this false dichotomy that people develop, whether it's faith or deeds that, you know, I have one, I don't need the other because my one is good enough. And James just makes it real clear that's not the case. So we'll dig into both of those sections of this chapter and look at these these very significant topics that James is addressing. So I look forward to you joining us as we turn our attention to the verses now. All right, as we begin chapter two, you'll notice that it begins with James saying, my dear brothers, or as this translation, New Living, as a little more inclusive in its terminology says, my dear brothers and sisters, because brothers would have referred to all believers, not just the guys. Uh, so brothers and sisters catches the, the thought, the intent behind it. But you will notice as we read through the book of James and as we study it, every so often he begins a section by saying that over, my dear brothers and sisters, why does he start out chapter two? He's already greeted them back in chapter one. Well, every time he change, changes subject matter uh, in, a, in a significant discourse with them or, or uh, I guess, monologue, really, he is drawing their attention back to what they mean to him, not to who he is, but to who they are to him. They are his dear brothers and sisters or his fellow believers. So chapter two is the beginning of one of those um, sections that he has broken it off into. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? Wow. That's just right out of the gate there. He hits them with it. How can you claim? He's just like, what is wrong with you? How can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others. Oh man, this is one of those passages when I read it, I just think those first century believers, they were so messed up. Yeah. As were those second century, third century, fourth century. What are we in now? Uh, 21st century? Yeah. Messed up. Because the truth is, there is something in our sinful, fallen nature that likes to play preference. James is calling us out. He said, hey, you claim the name of Christ. You claim to have faith in Jesus. Let me start by telling you what it does not look like. And it does not look like favoring some people over other people. And you may go, well, but wait a minute, Scott. I, there are people I like to hang out with, and there are other people that I don't like to hang out with. Hey, I'm the same way. But that's not really what he's talking about here. He's talking about valuing people. He's talking about seeing people as people and as people of value, something I tell my church folks on a fairly regular basis, reminding them, 
You know, if you ever doubt your worth or you're ever talking to another believer that doubts their worth, understand the value of every Christian has been made plain. The value of every person has been made plain because the value of each person is what God has paid to redeem you. And for each one of us, he has paid one Jesus Christ to redeem us. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So what are we worth in the eyes of God? Jesus. And if that's true for the person next to us, how can we look down on them? How can we favor one person over another when we know in the eyes of God how valuable they are? Now, in our hearts, do we struggle with this sometimes? Yeah, probably. Because it's part of our sinfulness that wants to do that, to play favorites. But that's not what God calls us to. That's not what faith in Christ looks like. And that was just verse 1. Let's look at verse 2. For example, oh, it's going to get worse. He's going to give us examples. For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting, literally it's synagogue, but um, by saying synagogue, which means gathering, by the way, he is not saying into your church building. He's saying you claim the name of Christ and you gather together. Somebody joins that gathering. It's who you are as a people, not where you go. For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgment is guided by evil motives? You may be going, Wait, what evil motives? I didn't want to get the furniture dirty. I didn't want to, I didn't want to disrupt other people's ability to worship by having someone dirty and disheveled sitting there blocking their view or, you know, whatever. No, that's not what's going on. Because the reality is it was common in that day and age and in ours that when you see somebody that looks like they could be of benefit to you, to your organization, to your congregation, that they tend to get favorable treatment. When that happens, it is wrong. Now, just camp out with that idea for a minute. When that happens, it is wrong. And you may say, but, but Scott, you don't understand. Our congregation is struggling financially. And here's a person that could, if, you know, if we're nice to them and they choose to bless our congregation with resources or, or, you know, gifts of cash or whatever, that this could be a really, this could be for the kingdom. This could be to further the cause of the kingdom or however you want to justify it. But what James is pointing out is that Christ does not give us that privilege. 
of choosing who is of benefit to his kingdom and who is not. And if we in our humanity look at the situation and say, I choose to favor that person because I think they will benefit me. Oh, wait, we don't say that. They will benefit my congregation. That means I'm not going to choose that other person. And it means I'm placing my faith and my trust in that person of means instead of in my Savior. That's the issue. When we place our faith in an individual we think can benefit us, or our hope in an individual we think we can benefit from, instead of in our Savior, then we have ceased to place our faith in Christ, and we have started to place our faith in someone else. And you may say, Scott, I think you're oversimplifying it. That can't be what it says. That can't be what this part of James means. You're just being too extreme with that understanding. You know, you're not interpreting it right. Then I challenge you, go back and read it. Because it's James that says, well, doesn't that discrimination show your judgments are guided by evil motives? Yeah. Boy, James is rough. I mean, he just puts it out there and says, this is it. And we're left to deal with it. But the truth is, that's the job of Scripture in our lives. When we read Scripture, it's not to make us feel good about ourselves. It is not to be all daisies and butterflies and whatever else makes you happy and comfortable. It is about being conformed to the image of Christ. And that means turning away from this world's way of doing things and this world's value system. Scripture should challenge who we are and should challenge our assumptions and challenge our comforts because it is God's word moving us from where we were towards where God desires us to be, the image of his son. Starting in verse 5, he says, Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Harkens back to Matthew 5, the Beatitudes. Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich? who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slandered Jesus Christ, whose name or whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed. It is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. Oh, I'm going to stop there and go back a little bit and look at this. Now, 
is he making blanket statements here? Yes, he is. And, um, you know, is it possible that a person of, of means, a person of wealth can still be a godly person? Yes. Joseph of Arimathea, some indication Nicodemus. I mean, there, there are characters throughout scripture that we've seen who were blessed with resources and who were godly in their handling of those resources. But in general, it is not the poor that have stood in opposition to faith in Christ. It is those with means, and especially in that first century Roman-dominated world, it was the wealthy that were persecuting believers. It was the wealthy who were dragging them into court and slandering the name of Christ. So all of these things come into play and he's saying just you know, look at the obvious here you want to play favorites towards the wealthy and yet where is your grief coming from and you want to put your trust in those people instead of in god you know he's just saying this is crazy think about this or as he says listen to me Then he draws from Scripture, and actually where he's quoting is from Leviticus, not from the New Testament. Jesus uses this passage in the New Testament as well. But yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law. Why is it royal law? Because it is given by the king of kings, and it is the law of his kingdom. Yes, it is good when you obey the royal law found in the Scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you're committing a sin. Because if you favor some people over others, you are not loving them all as yourself. You're just not doing it. And therefore, you have violated a command of God, the royal law found in Scripture. And if you have violated the royal law found in Scripture, the command of God, guess what? Verse 9, you are committing a sin and you are guilty of breaking the law. Now he goes on in verse 10. For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as the person who has broken all of God's laws. Now that's a tough concept. And many believers I come across don't really have uh, an acceptance and a comfort with that verse. But the reality is that you say, well, yeah, but that person's so much worse than me. They've done so much more bad than I have. Uh, they've committed so many more huge sins than I have. Are you telling me that my sins are just as bad as theirs or their sins are just as, as small as mine? You know, so I lied. Yeah, but they've had all sorts of affairs and they... They cheat in business, and I, uh, they even killed somebody. They're horrible people. And you're telling them, telling me our sins are the same, so all that they've done is just as, just as innocent as my lie? No, I'm not telling you that at all. In fact, what Scripture's telling us is, what you're failing to understand is there's nothing innocent about your lie. Your lie is just as bad as all of that stuff they did. Because it's all sin. 
And our sin separates us from God. Our sin earns us an eternity in hell. And the only way we don't face that reality is through the love of God and the sacrifice of Christ on the cross in our place, paying the price for our sin and offering that forgiveness, that atonement, that redemption, that paying the price for us. He offers that to us. And if we will accept him, turn to him in faith and in trust and follow him, then we gain the benefit of him paying the price instead of us paying the price. That's the reality of the gospel. And so for a person who keeps all the laws except one, that person is as guilty as the person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone, but you do not commit adultery, you've still broken the law. You're a lawbreaker. You are a sinner. Verse 12. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. Now you may be going, wait a minute, wait a minute. That almost sounds like works-based salvation. I have to show mercy to others to receive God's mercy when he judges me? Uh, No. Well, yes, actually. And it's not works-based, it's evidence-based. You see, if you are a follower of Christ, if you have been redeemed through the sacrifice of Christ, if you will remember that whatever you do will be judged by the law that sets you free, then you will understand what mercy is because you have received it through Christ. And having received that mercy, you will show mercy to others. If you can't show mercy, love, forgiveness to others, then really what that says about you is you have not experienced it yourself because it flows out of you. If you know Christ, if the spirit of Christ is in you, his nature, his character is going to show. Galatians, Paul refers to it as fruit of the spirit. And it comes from the presence of Christ in your life. And if you don't have any of the fruit, then it begs the question, Do you have Christ in your life? And James is just, he's being blunt here. Look, if there will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others, if you don't have it in you to give mercy to others, then you don't have it in you. Therefore, you are going to receive no mercy. It's a challenge. It is a calling people to task, going, look, this is the reality. 
of living your life for Christ and knowing him as Savior and Lord. And you can claim to know him, but if none of these things are evident in your life, then you don't know him. Now, that's where he ends that section. But in verse 14, he picks up with a new section, but it relates. Let's look at it. All right, in 14, it says, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye, and and have a good day. Stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? Now, I've actually recently read something on this that struck me a little bit, challenged me a little bit, because I've I've always read that and thought, you know, basically, you're not helping them. You're just telling them they need to go help themselves. You know, go, be well fed, be, you know, they have no food, okay? It's in the setup for it. Suppose you see your brother or sister who has no food or clothing and to tell them to stay warm and eat well. I mean, that's just ridiculous. There's actually more to it than that. As I'm reading background on this and and even trying to get a better handle on this passage, uh, one of the things that comes out is this could also be seen as an expression of faith. This um, stay warm and eat well could be an expression of I'm trusting God to bless you with staying warm and eating well, that, you know, you have no clothing and no food, but I'm trusting in God for these things in your life. It almost sounds spiritual, but it's not. You know why it's not? Because God has placed you there to make a difference in this person's life. Because your faith in God to deal with the situation also is a faith that should drive you to action to deal with the situation. I saw a cartoon the other day that struck me. It was, uh, I don't even remember what I was reading that it was there, but it was a cartoon of a guy leaning on a shovel handle looking at the ground. And the caption said something to the effect of, you know, it's, it's good to trust in God, but it's also important to go ahead and dig the hole with the shovel that you're leaning against, not just pray that God would make a hole. Um, you know, what's the point of that? God calls us to faith and to action, that action driven by our faith, that action guided by him through our faith. But faith requires action, or it's not really faith in anything. It's just nice-sounding words like, well, goodbye and have a good day. Stay warm and eat well. 
that's not going to address the issue with anybody who needs clothes, who needs food. And in this context of the first century world, the middle of the first century, people that found themselves in that kind of poverty and poverty often ended in people not being able to eat. They didn't have means or opportunity in many cases to change their situation. They were dependent upon others. So when you have the opportunity to be the hands and feet of God in the lives of someone else, faith should move you to that. Now, is it always the best option to fix everybody's problem if you can't? No, it's not. You need to be level-headed about that. There are certain ways to do it that provide dignity. Uh, There are resources out there to help you on that journey as you try to figure it out as an individual or as a church or a group of believers getting together. I highly recommend the book, When Helping Hurts. Um, It gives some wonderful, scripturally grounded guidance on how to truly minister to people at the point of their need in a way that helps them more than just makes us feel good about ourselves. But here James is making it abundantly clear there is not this dichotomy between faith and works. Now, Paul talked a lot in his writings about works and faith, or not faith, salvation does not come through works. Some people want to read James and say, well, it sounds like he's saying just the opposite, but he's not because James and Paul both say the same thing. It is faith in Christ that saves us, but that faith in Christ plays itself out in our lives. It manifests in our actions. And there's no escaping that. So if you want to sit back and say, well, I'm a person of faith and just rely on that faith, but you never put it into action. uh, The warning from James is you need to be real careful there because that faith may not be faith at all. It may just be what you've made yourself comfortable with because real faith, the faith that actually brings about salvation or shows or manifests the salvation in your life, that faith has action. Let's look on in verse 17. So you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. Oh, actually, emphasis is wrong there. You see, faith by itself isn't enough. End of the sentence. Next sentence. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Wow, it's not just dead, it's dead and useless. Is the point clear enough? Now, he does this kind of diatribe, this setting up a, you know, I say this, but someone else says this, and this backwards and forth argument with somebody who's not there that supposes on some of the arguments that might be held by the readers or hearers of this. He says in verse 18, now someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds, but I say, you know, in other words, you know, some people show their faith by doing things. Some people just have faith. You can be one or the other, like they're equal and it's okay. And no, he says, but I say, how can you show me your faith 
if you don't have good deeds, I will show you my faith by my good deeds. So his response to that is, well, you can have faith or you can have deeds. You know, your your faith in Christ can show itself in either way. He's going, no, it doesn't work that way. You have faith and it shows itself in deeds and that's it. Verse 19, you say, have faith for you believe there is one God, or you say you have faith because you believe there is one God. Oh, I believe in God. I have faith. I believe in God. Have you heard that? That's what James is saying. They're saying, you say you have faith for you believe there is one God. Now, context here. In today's world, we may go, oh, one God. I don't, you know, what's the the monotheistic nature of the Jewish and Christian, Judeo-Christian faith tradition is exclusive. In fact, even in the world today, primarily you have uh, three monotheistic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Now, I know there's some argument on that, because of the Trinitarian nature of the Christian faith. Some argue it's not monotheistic. It is. Learn your theology and get over it. Um, but in, I'm sorry. No, I'm not sorry. Islam is a corruption of the Jewish and Christian faith that came about some 600 AD. So, you know, I don't even have that on the table. In this first century world, when there is a claim of faith in one God, it is a claim that there is one and only one true God and all other gods are false. You're in a world that has a viewpoint that there are multiple gods, that every city, every village, every hill, every valley, every river, every stream, every everything has a deity, a God over it. And the strength of those gods is determined by who's biggest, who's most powerful. You know, if my city-state is more powerful than your city-state, then my god is more important than your god type of a thing. Uh, even looking at the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods, there's literally a pantheon of gods. I, it's, so this claim that I have faith because I believe that there is one god that is an exclusive monotheistic that is claiming to believe in the God of Israel as the one and only God. And that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing at all. And it really sounds like you're on board with following God with your life. But James keeps explaining 19 again, you say you have faith for you believe that there is one God. Good. Actually, he says, good for you. But then he includes others. He says, even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without deeds is useless? Or as you claim, well, I have this faith in God, the one true God. Everybody else is worshiping all these other gods. I believe in the one true God. I have faith. So I'm good. No, you're not. And James just is real blunt with it. You know, 
He says, well, good for you. Even the demons believe this because the truth is Satan and all of his demons know the truth. They know that God is God. Oh, they may be kicking against that reality, but they know it. They acknowledge it. They know who Christ is. And it doesn't save a one of them because it's not about knowledge. It's about faith, a faith that is lived out. And some, for some people, that's a wake-up call. The idea that this belief in the one true God, belief that there is one God, even belief in Christ, that he is the only begotten Son of God, is not enough if it's just knowledge. Because the demons know that much. But their response isn't to turn in faith, it's to tremble in terror. If that's the boat you're in, then as James says, how foolish. Can't you see that faith without deeds is useless? Your faith in God, your faith in Christ has to play itself out in how you behave, in what you do. Now, here in the last part of James chapter 2, verses uh, 21 through 26, the end of the chapter, James is about to give us two examples from Old Testament history that make it abundantly clear how important faith is, but how important that faith lived out is that it's a complete package. It's not this or that. It's this and that. And it needs to be an and thing. Remember, it's not, well, I have faith or you have works. No, it's uh it's gotta be both. Verse 21, don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions? When he offered his son Isaac on the altar, that was an act that involved him being all in and taking action. He was about to sacrifice his son. Why? Because God told him to. Did it make sense? No. But he put his faith in the promise of God that he would have descendants, that the world would be blessed through his descendants, that there would be a nation of his descendants. And so he might not have understood how God was going to do that if he sacrificed Isaac, but he knew that the God that had promised him that told him to do what he was doing. So he was faithful and he did it. You see, his faith... This is verse 22. You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened just as scripture says. Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called a friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith 
alone. It's faith and action. Now, in case you're you're hanging here with suspense and you don't know the rest of the story, God stops Abraham from sacrificing Isaac and provides a ram that was caught in the bush. It was a test of faith, not a desire for child sacrifice, okay? Um, and God stepped in and stopped it from getting to that point. But he wanted to see Abraham... And I think for our benefit too, see Abraham express that faith in action. God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. Man, to be known as the friend of God. Wow. So you see, We're shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Now, the way he says that's important. It is what we do that shows us to be right with God. It's the faith that makes us right with God. We need both of them. Okay, we can't just do good stuff and say that'll make me right with God. No, it's a both. Second example, verse 25, Rahab, the prostitute. Now, I know that's, you know, some people, he said prostitute. Yes, I did, because it's printed right here in scripture. And I tell you, if you dig into the Greek behind it and you really delve into what it means, even going back to the Old Testament and the the Hebrew over Joshua, talking about Rahab and, and this term prostitute that's used for her. When you really break it down, what it means is actually prostitute. Yeah. You don't get to weasel out of that one. That was her profession. Abraham the prostitute is another, Abraham, sorry, Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Now, he's referring back to the Old Testament, the the fall of Jericho. The spies were sent in, and she, uh, so that they wouldn't be caught and killed, she expressed her faith in God accepting the truth of the one true God, the God of Isaac, Abraham, and Israel. And then she put that faith into action, and she helped those messengers of God by sending them away safely by a different road. That's important. What's not important is what she used to do for a living. Because that's who she was. What is important is that she placed her faith in God. And then she let that faith live itself out in action in her life. That's the point of the passage. Rahab, the prostitute, is another example. She was shown to be right with God the evidence of her being right with God 
by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Verse 26, just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. Well, there it is. James chapter 2. It's challenging. It's not the only challenging chapter in James. James is very intent, very concerned with his flock that is scattered around the Mediterranean and that they hold tight to the truth of Christ and the claim of Christ upon their lives and what that means and looks like. And those things are all still true today. That as the first part of the chapter talked about, we cannot fall into showing favoritism. We can't discriminate in that way. And when we do, it really screams out the malady within our own heart that our faith is not in Christ, but we are placing our faith in men or resources or the hope of some benefit. Whatever it is, it's not Christ. That's not what living for Christ looks like. Living for Christ looks like love your neighbor. Second part of the chapter, your faith has to play itself out in action. It's faith and deeds. You can't claim just deeds. You can't claim just faith. If you have genuine faith in Christ, it bears itself out in action. So if you're a believer, I encourage you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Live in faith in Christ. Live in faith in Christ. Let the deeds of the way you live be evidence of your faith. It's what we're called to. It's what it is to be transformed into the image of Christ by the renewing of our hearts and minds. Place your faith in Christ. Live for Him. And if you don't know Him as Savior and Lord, know that the invitation is open to you from God to turn to Him and to receive forgiveness. It's not just about knowing. It's about faith in Him and living that out. Trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, again, we just turn our hearts to You, and we thank You for Your Word. Lord, that You don't leave us as You found us, but You have changed us. In Your Word, You talk about us being a new creation. Here in James, He talks about how how fundamentally what we do changes because of who you are and our faith in you. Lord, I thank you that you change us into what you desire us to be 
into something that brings glory to you and your kingdom. I thank you that you forgive us and redeem us from our sin. And I thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.